I am the light of the world. Those words are attributed to Jesus of Nazareth. And so begins the passage of God's word that we are going to look at today. If you stand back and think about these words, Jesus is making quite the audacious claim. And that's exactly what some of the people around there thought too. When Jesus said that, it was mind-boggling to them. It, it turned their world upside down. How could he say, I am the light of the world? When I saw those words and thought about just the concept of lights, my, my thoughts immediately went to Thomas Edison, the man who's said to have invented the light bulb back in 1879. Now, I've since found out, as I did, looked at it a little bit deeper, that he wasn't quite the first, but it was Thomas Edison that had the wherewithal and the smarts and, and the money to market and to, to patent his light bulb. And it was a, a, a bit of a better, quite a bit better of a light bulb in quality than all the ones that had come before, than just the first, and maybe the previous 20 years or so. Anyways, in some ways, Edison could make the claim that he gave light to the world, He's the one that was most responsible for uh, connecting electricity to light bulbs. And so today, we come into a room and we just flick a switch and lights come on and, and the room is illuminated. Before Edison, all people had in order to bring light to a room were gasoline lamps. And before that, and, and this is only about in the last 250 years or so, before gasoline lamps, they had to use oil lanterns. And that went all the way back to the time in which Jesus lived. They would mostly use torches that were fueled by um, some sort of oil-soaked rags that they would light up. Today, we can barely imagine what that would have been like. We live in cities that are all lit up at night. I actually just read a fascinating article this week that traced back to the time before cities started to have gas lamps even. And the writer told about what it was like once the sun went down. Here's part of what he said. He said, those who had good reason, legitimate or illicit, to venture outdoors during the night season developed a whole range of tricks to help them. In an age before widespread light pollution, the illumination of the moon and the stars was far more useful. People knew their neighborhoods intimately, every tree, every hedge, every post. In some places, great piles of chalky soil known as, uh, known as down lanterns served as beacons. Bark would be cut from strategic trees to expose the lighter wood beneath. The senses of hearing, the dog barking, the senses of smell, like a honeysuckle tree, and the sense of touch, like a notch cut in a banister at a sharp turn in the stairs, became all the more important. Far before artificial lightning, or artificial lighting, indoors was just as treacherous as outdoors. In Sweden, some of you are Swedish background here, it was common practice to push the furniture against the walls before retiring to bed, so that you wouldn't bump into it if you rose in the middle of the night. No nightlights. 
By the late 18th century, man had advanced from the first flaming torches through primitive lights, which came by placing moss or some other fiber in a shell or hollow stone and filling it with animal fat. They've they moved from that, they advanced from that to metal oil lamps, sporting sophisticated wicks and artfully sealed reservoirs filled with olive, sesame, fish, nut, or plant oil. Amazing. Like I said, we can hardly imagine those days. And so Edison's invention was revolutionary. It changed everything. If you really think about it, his invention actually drastically minimized the separation or the difference between daytime and nighttime. When it gets dark outside, it's no longer as big of a deal as it was for the vast majority of human history. Thomas Edison, we could say, gave light to the world, at least to the industrialized world, realizing that there's still parts of the third world that, that, that don't even have electrical light. Which makes the statement, or which makes the, the statement of Jesus even more revolutionary. Jesus did not just give light to the world. He said, I am the light of the world. One person is light for the whole world for all time. And what made those words, or what made that claim especially revolutionary and, like I said, audacious, back when he said it, is that his words sounded like something only God could say. It's interesting that the very first words in the Bible that are attributed to God are, let there be light. That's Genesis 1, verse 3. In verse 2, it said that the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And into that darkness, God comes and says, let there be light. And of course, we know the next sentence, and there was light. And now Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. And you can see how those who were listening immediately thought, wait a minute, Jesus is actually saying that he's God. Well, let's find out how the people there in Jerusalem responded to that statement, especially the religious people that were there in that crowd that he was talking to. Those words are found in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And if you're using, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, just help yourself to one of the Bibles that are in the chair in front of you. And if you're using one of those Bibles, it's on page 894. So John chapter 8, and I'm going to be reading verses 12 to 30. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even I do judge. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. 
I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where's your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so he said to them again, I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he didn't speak to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So you see the claim of Jesus right there at the beginning. I am the light of the world. He's the light of the entire world. But then notice what he says next. From the broad, worldwide effect of that statement, he quickly narrows narrows it down when it comes to those that are affected by that light. And he does it by one of those sentences that starts with, whoever. The Gospel of John is filled with with those kinds of challenges, those kinds of choices for those who would believe Jesus. And he starts many of those sentences with that word, whoever. For for example, if you want to just peek back to the middle uh, and to the end of chapter 6, you'll see that word condensed three times between verses 35 and 37, And then another four times between verses 54 and 58 of John chapter 6. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, whoever feeds on me. Well, here in chapter 8, verse 12, we have Jesus making a statement about himself. Who he is, and then what that means for whoever follows me. Whoever follows me, he said, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, If you're looking for how this part of the Bible applies to you, here it is, right off the top. Will you follow Jesus? Will you follow the light? And if you say, no, I don't want to do that, then it says that you will walk in darkness now and forever. If you say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, you will have the light of life. You will have Jesus now and forever. It's really just as simple as that. Well, let's see what Jesus means by all that. If you're anything like me, you might be a little curious, and you might want to say to Jesus, uh, what do you mean by the fact that you are the light of the world? Well, what's interesting here, and you might have noticed as I read this, that the, in the rest of verse, uh, the verses that I read, that, that subject of light never comes up again in the rest of the passage. He, it seems like he just kind of says that, and then 
drops it as the Pharisees go in another direction. And he'll actually won't bring it up again until the very next chapter, but, but never here again. But there's an explanation for that. And the explanation is that a certain group in the crowd there in the temple courts in Jerusalem knew exactly, like I said, what Jesus was implying by those words. And so while it might look like Jesus goes on to another subject for the rest of the passage, the religious leaders knew the implications of that statement. They knew it all too well. They knew their Bibles, which would have been our Old Testament. They, they, were, they were experts. And by saying, I am the light of the world, they took that as Jesus saying that he was equal to God, the one who said, let there be light, back there in Genesis chapter 1. And they, they saw also allusions to the Exodus story. After the Israelites, the Hebrews that were, were freed from Egyptian slavery, where God protected them and he guided them as a, as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God was there with them. Exodus 13, verse 21 says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire, listen, to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So way before Edison's light bulb eliminated the span between light and darkness in the cities, God did that supernaturally just by his presence. He made the night look like daytime so that they could travel the same way during the night and during the day. Las Vegas kind of does that today. They, They don't put any windows in their casinos, but they got tons of lights in there. What they try to do is try to eliminate the difference between day and night so that people don't notice, so that they can just carry on with their gambling and their other activities and without even realizing what part of the day it is. That's why it's called the city that never sleeps. Their motive is that people just keep on spending money. And so it's a, it's a selfish motivation in that way. Well, God gives light here for the good of his people. God gave light to the Hebrews in order to protect them from their enemies and to guide them and to just be present with them, to be the light. It was for their good. Similarly, Jesus is the light so that those who follow him will have the light of life. Hang on to that statement there, the light of life. Jesus earlier, remember, said, I am the bread of life. So it's significant here that here he says that you will have the light of life. So the Pharisees think that Jesus, in saying, I am the light, is is making himself equal with God the Father. And they're 100% correct. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Even the words, I am, give a hint toward that. Because that's exactly how God revealed himself to Moses back in Exodus 3. Remember, Moses asked God, as God revealed himself to him in the burning bush there in Exodus 3, he says, um, God, if the people ask who, who you are, what, what am I going to say? And Jesus just said, just tell them, I am. I am. And I think that's kind of a non-answer, but... That's how Jesus revealed himself, as the I am. And so it's significant here that Jesus says, I am the light. That happens at least seven times in, in Moses. He identifies himself as with, that, with those words to start, I am. I am. We've already looked at one, I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. And it's that claim to being God that had these Jewish leaders trying to discredit Jesus. They saw the connection immediately. They thought they knew exactly who God was. They had their theology down. They thought they had it all figured out. And for someone else to come and say that now was in their minds blasphemous. And so the light thing doesn't come up anymore. The Pharisees go right to the truthfulness of Jesus' claim. And they do it by going to the law of Moses. Something, again, that they thought they knew so well. Part of that law said that nothing can be verified as true unless it's corroborated by two or three witnesses. And that's really what that section, verses 13 to 18, are all about. You are bearing witness about yourself, they say. Your testimony is not true. In other words... Because it's only you that's saying this about yourself, they say, your testimony isn't valid. You can't just make a claim to be God. You can't give testimony to yourself. That's not going to stand up. Where are your witnesses? Basically, these Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus on a technicality. James Montgomery Boyce has given us some good insight in saying that if someone wants to eliminate a witness's testimony... If you wanted to get rid of a witness's testimony, there's three things that you can do. One, you can kill the witness. That would do it. Or two, you can try to discredit the witness. Or number three, they can get rid of the testimony on some kind of a technicality. And Boyce points out that the religious leaders had already tried the first two. Back in chapter 7, verse 1, it says that the Jews were, were trying to kill him. It says the same thing later on in that chapter in verses 19 and 25. And just in this last section with the adulterous woman, they try to discredit Jesus. It says in chapter 8, verse 6, that they tried to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And now they're trying to get him on a technicality. So they're just trying to get rid of the witness of Jesus, trying to, trying to prove that his testimony is not valid or true. And namely here that he doesn't have one or two additional witnesses that can corroborate his claim to be God. Well, let me just summarize Jesus' response to their accusation by saying that he takes that opportunity to actually further substantiate, to double down on the fact that he is God the Father and that he himself is the Son of God, or so that God is the Father and that he himself is the Son of God. First, working backwards down in verses 17 and 18, Jesus shows that he actually does meet the requirement that they're even bringing up of having two or three witnesses. He, he says that he's witness number one and that the Father is witness number two. Look at verse 18. I'm the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So there you have it. Two witnesses. His claim is valid, even according to their law. And so he can say that I am the light of the world. But even notwithstanding that, Jesus tells them that they're thinking on a totally different wavelength. They're thinking on human terms. It says that in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. Jesus is showing that they're not thinking of who he is on any kind of spiritual level. Look at verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from. And where I'm going, but you don't know 
where I come from or where I'm going. Jesus is saying that he has come from God. He's come from God. It's God who sent him. And that's why he can say, I am the light of the world. And he's going back to God. But these teachers really become exhibit A of walking in the darkness. They just can't see with spiritual eyes. They can't. And like everyone else who doesn't see with spiritual eyes, they can't and they don't want to. Both of those working together. They do not have the light of life. You don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. They don't want to see that Jesus is God the Son. They can't bring themselves to believe Jesus even though he's right there in front of them. He is right there with them. Even though he's just said, I am the light of the world, they don't see him. They don't see him. They don't know him. And that will be their undoing. Simple lesson for us here at this point is not to, just, not to trust in our own understanding when it comes to spiritual things. God's ways are always higher than our ways. I think Pastor Andrew read that this morning in, in uh, Romans chapter 11. How did that go? Depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. It tells us that we need something to happen to our, our, our minds. We need light. We need the light of Jesus in order to understand and believe his claims. In order to trust him to be for us the light of life. But the people there are stuck in their unbelief. Like I said, they actually don't want to believe it. It, it doesn't matter how convincing the evidence, even having the, big, the, 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 the most truthful witness right there in front of them, they still can't be convinced. No matter how convincing the evidence, they do not want to be convinced. And they, and they prove it by firing off three questions here that, that follow. And these questions aren't just uh, inquiring kinds of questions where they want to know some more information. They're, they're mocking kinds of questions, insulting questions. Something like seeing someone maybe do something that's way off the wall and, and, ask, and just going up to them and says, Are you crazy? Well, that's formed as a question, but, but we already believe that they're crazy. We're not really asking. We're telling. And that's what's going on here. They think Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, which is a claim to be God, is way out there. In fact, in their eyes, like I said before, it's blasphemous. It's offensive. And so their questions are very intentionally aimed to mock Jesus, to insult him to discredit him again. And you see them there in verse 19, those questions in verse 19, verse 22, and verse 25. It starts in verse 19 with, where's your father? All they maybe even care to admit is that Joseph was, their, was his father. They knew that. They knew that Jesus was born in Nazareth and, 
and Joseph was his father. But if Jesus claims to be the Son of God, well, well, they know then that that means that Jesus really has no earthly father. Or as they seem to imply later in verse 41, is that he is an illegitimate child. Where is your father? But Jesus basically says that their problem, again, is that they know nothing about God. Which probably for them would have been like a direct blow to the face. They don't have the light. And they don't believe the light. Their minds are in the dark about Jesus and about God. If there's anything these religious leaders, these these Pharisees prided themselves on, it was that they knew who God was. Yet Jesus says in verse 19, You know neither me or my Father. Ouch. But to know neither the Jesus nor the Father is deadly. And those words, that's deadly, bring us to the heart of this section, which is in verses 21 to 24. And I say that this is the heart of the section because it's here that Jesus spells out the implications of not following Jesus. Here's what this means. Sometimes this whole idea of Jesus being God and, and you know, even the, the triune God, we talk about the Trinity, um, three persons in one, one is three. Uh, those things are st- sort of hard to get our, our heads around. But there are implications to believing that Jesus is God. And that's what Jesus talks about here. Because it's here that Jesus spells out the opposite of having the light of life. Look again at verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Earlier he said, I'm going away, and you'll seek me, and you won't find me, back in chapter 7. Here he says, I'm going away, and you'll seek me, and not only will you not find me, but you will die in your sin. So, verse 12 said, whoever follows me will have the light of life. Verse 21 presents the other side, the tragic side. I'm going away, you'll seek me. In other words, you will maybe want to follow me, but you will die in your sins. It'll be too late. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, those words should make you shudder and hopefully respond in faith. There will come a time when it's too late. Of course, the Jews just mock this with another question. Is he going to kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you can't come. So they rightly understood that Jesus was talking about dying here. And the irony of their question is that Jesus would give himself up to die, but it would not be at his own hands. It would be at the hands, actually, of these leaders. And so Jesus says again that their minds are set on the things below. But in verse 24, he just kind of drives the nail right in and announces their fate. I told you that you would die in your sins. That makes it sound like, in Jesus' judgment, they're doomed. And essentially, they are doomed. In fact, we are all doomed 
to die in our sins. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But thankfully, that's not the end of the sentence in John 8.24. It's not the end of the sentence in Romans 6.23 either. Jesus ends the sentence in John 8.24 by providing a way of escape. Jesus ends the sentence with really a gospel invitation. He says, for unless, we've got to be thankful for this unless, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Oh, how can we be thankful that verse is there. That word unless is a gospel word. It's a good news word. Unless you believe that I am God, unless you believe that I am the light of the world, unless you believe that I am, fill that in with God. Friends, if you do believe that Jesus is God, you will not die in your sins. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light of life. This section is all about life and death. You will have the light of life, verse 12, or you will die in your sins, in verses 21 and 24. But this is not only about you and your life and death. This is about Jesus. This is about Jesus' life and Jesus' death, which is then applied to your life and death. Down in verse 28, Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Now, what does that mean, when you've lifted up? This is not lifting up the Son of Man in a song like, we exalt you. This is Jesus being lifted up on a cross to die. The cross reveals Jesus as our Savior, as the one who came to rescue us so that we would not die in our sins. Jesus died on a cross so that we would not die in our sins, but that we might have the light of life. Jesus, the sinless one, took upon himself the sins of all those who would trust in him so that we might have life. But we must believe. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Think of the implications of that. Either you die in your sin, or Jesus dies for your sins. And the dividing line is whether you believe, whether you trust in who Jesus said he is all through the scriptures, right from the beginning, as he says in this section. Whether you trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus says and in what Jesus did. And so in verse 25, the Jews ask their third insulting question, who are you? They actually don't believe he's anyone other than a fraud. He's a, he's a nobody, is what they mean here. For sure not the savior of the world. But I would just encourage you today, if you are not a Christian, do not make this same error in judgment. Be sure what you believe about Jesus. Do not leave here being dead in your sins. Turn away from your sin in contrition and sorrow, repentance, and turn toward Jesus, the one who is lifted up on the cross and lifted up out of the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Do it now. If you see Jesus as the light of the world, you will have the light of life. 
And if you do already believe, be thankful that God has called you into his glorious light. I think there's a tendency sometimes, and I'm speaking for myself here, for us to forget that Jesus is the light of the world. Oh, we know that in our heads, but, but, but sometimes we can be overtaken by temptation or even fall into sin. Sometimes our trials or our sufferings can, can, can threaten to, to slowly, subtly shift us back into the darkness. Maybe you're on that path today. Does it feel like you're, you're walking, maybe even staggering or, or stumbling in the darkness? Listen to Ephesians 5 eight, because I think it has a good word for you if you're in that situation. It says, At one time, you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. There, that's the encouragement and the promise from God to you today. Jesus is the light of the world. Follow him, and you will not Walk in darkness. Walk as children of the light. Our Father, how we thank you again for Jesus, the one who is the light of the world, the one who we know to be the light of the world, the one who came from you and is now with you, the one who, who, who only did what you taught him, the one who is lifted up on a cross so that we would not have to die in our sin. We pray today, our Father, that if there be any here that have not put their faith in Jesus, that you would direct them as only you can toward you in repentance and faith, whether they do that in the quiet of their own heart or, or, or whether they, they, they tell someone, Lord, I pray that they would take care of that today and that they would know for sure that they will not die in their sins. And for us who are maybe having a, a tough time seeing the light, maybe even today, maybe even in this season of our lives, Lord, we pray that your words would serve to remind us of what you have done for us in Christ. And help us then to walk as children of the light. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.